0: All right, you can turn to James chapter 3, James chapter 3. Now, no, we are not going to skip the second half of James chapter 2. Not going to chicken out on that passage, but figure since that's the most famous and controversial passage in James two fourteen through 26, we'd save it for a home game weekend. So we'll cover that when LSU comes to town next week. Now, because that passage is so controversial, I'd like to do something a little different next week that I want to let you know about. Uh, James 2:14 to 26 often inspires a lot of questions about salvation and life and sin and all kinds of things. And so after this service next week at 12:30, um, I'm going to come back in here and just open up the floor for a Q&A period. We'll go as long as you want. You can go grab some food or drink or whatever, come back and ask any question you want, anything about the Bible, theology, um, life application. I'll prioritize those questions that are on James 2, but answer anything you got next week at 1230 in this room. For this morning, we're going to actually go and jump into chapter three. So that's the plan this morning. Now, it's been a big week in the life of the Jennings and my family because my twins turned three. Big week for us. I was informed by my wife the other day that my kids are officially no longer toddlers. That's really exciting. I, I wish that like there was all of a sudden a change in behavior when your kids are called preschoolers. Wouldn't that be great just to flip a switch? It doesn't work that way, but I am excited. We are entering the preschool years, and, and so my kids had a big party yesterday. Great time with my kids, also a good time for a little reflection. What have I learned over the last three years of of being a parent, well, there's been some surprises along the way. There were um, a number of things that I have seen being a parent that I never expected to be true. Here's one example: I'm I'm surprised to see how often I lie to my children. Before I had kids, I was a really honest man, but then I became a parent, and now it seems I, I lie all the time. We, we parents, we, we lie to our kids a lot. I'll give you one example, and because there may be children in the room, I'm not going to spell it out in any detail. I'm going to assume that you can, can make a leap with me here. It's cold weather. So parents, what do we start getting our kids excited about? going to leave it right there. You know, but we know the truth, and yet we get our kids excited about it. Now, that's a, a little lie. It has hopefully very small consequences for us, but here's another one, another lie that has a little bigger consequences that you often hear parents say. Our child is made fun of. Somebody says something mean to your child. What do parents say? Little ditty that goes like this. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Really? Really? Is, is you're old enough to know? Is is that true? Um, if this was true, why is it that today I can hardly remember any of the times growing up when I was hit with a stick? And I grew up in the piney woods south of here. I was hit with a stick all the time. I can't remember any of those instances. But what I can remember is every time I was made fun of. I can remember the nicknames. I can remember the feeling in my gut when a kid made fun of me on the playground. I think we all understand sticks and stones are nothing. They, they cut you or bruise you, but it heals in a few days. But words, they cut so much deeper than skin or bones. Words can wound you for a lifetime. Words are incredibly powerful, Either for good or for bad, words can shape the course of your entire life. Words are incredibly powerful and can be incredibly dangerous. And so it is no surprise that in this book, this very practical book full of wisdom about how to live an undivided life, it is no surprise that James would dedicate space to the topic of words to this essential subject of of how we use our words to bless rather than to curse. That's what our passage is about this morning. Chapter three, verses one through 12. And James' discussion of words begins with a warning. Look with me at verse one. James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Have you ever wondered um, what is... Blake's least favorite verse in the Bible. This is it. This is any preacher's least favorite verse. It's a really scary verse to read here about judgment. Really, really scary verse to read. Um, What James is doing in this verse when he talks about teachers, he's not talking about teachers in a general sense, like elementary teachers or university professors. He's talking about those who teach the word of God to someone else. So that would include pastors and and elders. It would include the adults who are teaching our children right now. It would include youth ministry, college ministry, anywhere that someone is getting up and teaching God's word. Now, in this profession, in this thing that you have called me to do, to stand up here and teach with you, in this job, there are some really great benefits. I, I am still, to be honest, I'm still stunned that you choose to pay me to spend my time studying the word of God. That's absolutely sweet. I can't believe you do that. I feel so privileged that I get to study God's word as a job. Incredible benefits to this job of being a teacher of God's word. So it's not surprising that in James' audience, many people wanted to be teachers. You get the sense that they were all clamoring to be doing what what I was doing, because there are benefits that go with this job. But James wants us to understand, while there are benefits to teaching the word of God, there are also substantial risks And top of the list, greatest risk of all is that those who teach the word of God, pastors, elders, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, we will be held to a stricter standard of judgment. Now, what is that judgment? We're going to study it in great detail next week. That'll actually be kind of at the core of what we study next week. For this week, all that we need to notice is that this judgment cannot be about escaping hell and getting to heaven. If that's what this judgment was about, getting out of hell and into heaven, then I would resign this instant. I would be an idiot to choose a job that makes it harder for me to get to heaven. Furthermore, the Bible is clear. Getting to heaven has nothing to do with what I do. It's not about my life and what I do. It's about what Jesus did. Getting to heaven is completely based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you want to know without doubt that you are going to heaven when you die, all you have to do is simply believe that Jesus, God's son, went to the cross with your sins upon him and died in your place. He took your punishment in your place and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. The moment that you believe that, the moment that you believe Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, heaven is locked up for you you are guaranteed that you will spend eternity with God because eternity is based on what Jesus did, not what we did. That's how you get through eternal life. So this judgment is not about escaping hell and getting to heaven. It is something different. It is what Paul will call the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is a a judgment that happens in heaven. You're already in heaven. You already escaped the whole hell thing. You are in heaven, standing before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he evaluates you because you are his servant. You are his steward on earth. And so he evaluates your life, not based on faith. That's what got you to heaven. He evaluates it based on obedience. How faithful were you as a steward of the king? If you have been faithful to obey him, you receive reward. In honor and glory, if you were not faithful to obey him, then, then you miss out on that reward and you experience shame and regret as you stand before your Savior. And what James wants us to understand, at that judgment, that judgment seat of Christ, we who have taught the word of God to others will be held to a higher standard of judgment. The standard will be stricter for us to pass Jesus' test. James is just saying something very similar to what Jesus said in Luke 12. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. This job is a privilege. It is a privilege to teach the word of God to other people. And so I and those like you who teach the word of God will be held to a stricter standard of judgment. It's a somewhat fearful warning. Again, this really is my least favorite verse in the Bible because it's kind of terrifying to me. When I stand before my Savior, he'll hold me to a higher bar because I taught the word. And what that begs is a question. Why? Why would God hold teachers of the word to a higher standard? You would think that God would want all of us to teach the word. You would think he would want lots of us to be teaching other people God's word. You think he'd make it as easy as possible, as attractive as possible. So why this scary verse? Why would God hold teachers of the word to a higher standard standard? Than others for a simple reason. God holds teachers to a higher standard because we have been entrusted with great power. Those who teach the word have been entrusted with great power the power of words. We speak words of God's grace and truth to you. That is a powerful thing. Words are not small. Words are not insignificant. Words are incredibly powerful. And that's where James goes next in this passage. He wants us to understand the reason that teachers are held to a high standard is because words aren't little things. Words are not insignificant things. Words are incredibly powerful. They have incredible power to shape the world, to shape the lives of men and women far and wide. That's where James goes next. He wants to challenge us and help us understand the power of our words. Look with me starting in verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Now, throughout this passage and throughout the rest of the verses that we'll read this morning, James is going to talk about the tongue. That, that muscle in your mouth. But really, the tongue is not what he cares about. What he cares about is what the tongue does. It, it shapes our words. It is with our tongue that we speak. Now, it's important to understand, in James' day, if you wanted to communicate with someone else, you had to do it through speech. There was no email, no text messages, no phone you could pick up, no video conferencing. You could write a letter, but only if you were rich, actually, in the the ancient world. Letter writing was very rare. You typically had to hire somebody, a scribe who could help you with it. The tools were expensive. And so very few people wrote letters just once in a while. And so almost all of your communication was through the speech that comes out of your mouth face to face. And so James could talk about all of communication by referring to your tongue. Now, in our days, it's more complicated than that. A lot of the speech, a lot of the words that we share with other people do not come from our tongues. They come from our thumbs on a text message or our fingers in an email or a Facebook post or Twitter. And James encompasses all of that. He's not just talking about your speech. That's the the misunderstanding most people have with James 3. He's talking about your words, whether spoken or typed, however you communicate. He's talking about all of that. And that's very significant to realize because I don't know if you guys have have noticed this, but um, I found that, that the place where people err with their words is usually the words that are typed, not the words that are spoken. I see stuff that people will put on Facebook or in an anonymous post on a blog that they would never say face-to-face, never. So often where we err in our speech is not our words verbally spoken, but the words we share by text, by tweet, by Facebook, by email. And James wants to wrap himself around all of that. If you blog words that are sinful, but you do so anonymously, that does not get you off the hook with God. It's words in any form, text or spoken, anonymous or not, all of it, God wants all of it to be godly because all words carry power. Great power for good or harm, whether spoken or typed. That's where James goes. He wants us to understand the power of words. He gives us two reasons why words are so powerful, why they're such a powerful thing in our lives. The first reason he gives us is words are powerful because they reveal our spiritual condition. Verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. When James says perfect, he's not talking about absolute moral perfection like Jesus. He's talking about maturity. That's what that Greek word teleos means in the context here. What James is saying is if you want to know if a person is mature, just look at his words. Words are a barometer of maturity, a measure of maturity. And the reason is, is because in James' logic here in verse 2, it goes like this. If you can gain control of your words, if you can get control of your speech, of the things that you type in text, then, man, there's nothing that you do that you can't gain control of. Everything else in your life is easy compared to gaining control over your words. Your words are the hardest thing to wrestle to control in your life. Your words are the hardest thing to make righteous in your life. And most people never get there. Most people in this life may master many things, but most people do not master their words. I saw a gravestone or of a gravestone in the English countryside. It said, beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Sadly, that's true of most human beings. It's not until they are dead and buried that finally they've learned to control their words. Most of us just can't do it. It's beyond us to control our words. The reason that it's so tough to control our words is because sinful words slip out so easily, so instantaneously a sinful thought comes to your mind and boom, it's already said. Sinful actions, on the other hand, they take premeditation. If I'm going to do something sinful, first I have to decide to do it, and then I have to move my body and do that thing which is sinful. So sinful actions take some time, but not sinful words. As soon as I think it, I can speak it, boom, it's out of my mouth. I don't know if you've ever had that moment when you're in a tense conversation with somebody and it's, it's getting heated, you're kind of watching, and all of a sudden it's kind of like you have an out-of-body experience and you're kind of observing yourself and you see yourself saying that word or that thing that you swore you would never say, but there it goes right out of your mouth, no, but you can't get it back, boom, it's out. Words are incredibly hard to control because they slip out of our mouths so easily. If you can restrain your words, if you can control your words, then you can master anything. That's why our words are the measure of our maturity. They reveal our spiritual condition. That's the first reason that they are so powerful. The second reason they are so powerful, according to James, is because words determine our destiny. Words determine the course, the direction of our lives. James makes that point with a couple analogies. Look at verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. So you put this, this little piece of metal, this little bit in the mouth of a horse... And it can direct that horse wherever you want it to go. You, you pull to the left, it goes to the barn. You pull to the right, you head to town. That little bit of metal in the mouth of a horse directs its entire destiny. So it is with our words. Our words, these little things that we speak out of our mouths, they direct our lives. They direct whether we head to the left or to the right, towards good or towards bad. James makes the same point in the next analogy about a ship. Look with me uh, at verse 4. Look at the ships also, though they are so great... And are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. These massive ships in James' day, they weighed many tons, and yet they could be directed, their destiny, their course could be set by a little wooden rudder. A few square feet in size at the back of the ship. So it is with our tongues. Little instruments in our mouth that shape our words and determine the entire course of our lives. That leads James to the conclusion at the beginning of verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. This boast here is not sinful, it's just factual. James is saying your tongue can boast of incredible power because it has incredible power. Your tongue shapes the words that you speak and words have incredible power to shape your life. Book of Proverbs makes a similar point. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's the power of words, death or life. Often the Bible compares our tongue to a sword, a sword that can end someone's life. That's the power your tongue has over life and death. Your tongue, your words shape destiny. Now, that's actually very easy to prove. Here in America, we tend to to celebrate the man of action, the man who goes out and just gets it done. That's when we, we tend to celebrate. But, but actually, if we reflect on it for a moment, you'll, you'll realize the destiny of America has primarily been shaped by men of words, by people who spoke key words at key times. A few illustrations, Thomas Jefferson, Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That little phrase launched a revolution that birthed the whole nation. Martin Luther King, a couple hundred years later, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Those few words, that little paragraph inspired a nation to end centuries of segregation. Finally, Reagan gets up in front of the Berlin Wall and declares, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. That becomes a rallying cry that reshapes the whole map of modern Europe. Words have Power Words shape destiny. Our nation is what it is because of words. That's the power that words have, not just for a nation, but for an individual as well. In my own life, my destiny, the course of my life, has been primarily shaped by words. Growing up, I heard my parents say a phrase over and over again. Simple little phrase, short little phrase: "Blake: I am proud of you." Five words: I am proud of you over and over again. All growing up, I am proud of you. Those five words, that short little phrase has done more than anything else in my life to make me the man I am, to give me confidence, to give me security. I don't care what you think of me because my parents are proud of me. Those words have shaped my destiny. Uh, a few years later, I told a girl, uh, hey, Julie, would you like to go to coffee? Followed a year later by with this ring I thee wed, and now my whole life is different because of Words. Words have power. They shape destiny of a nation, of an individual. Your whole life is directed by words, either towards good or evil. Words have great power. And because words have great power, when they are sinful, when they are hurtful words, those powerful words wreak great destruction. And that's where the passage goes next. Because words are powerful, when they are uttered in sin, they wreak havoc on people's lives that's what James wants us to understand next look with me starting in verse 5 so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives and is set on fire by hell For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James wants us to understand because words are powerful. When they are uttered in sin, they are destructive. Words can do incredible damage to other people. That's where he starts. He wants us to understand the danger of words. And the first danger of words, the first reason that they are dangerous is sinful words destroy. Sinful words are destructive to other people. You notice there at the beginning of verse six, what does he compare sinful words to? A forest fire. Our tongue is is like a spark that can ignite a forest fire. Now, if you think about it, a spark can be a good thing. If you are in the middle of the wilderness and it is a freezing night, a spark can light a bonfire that keeps you alive. So a spark can be a good thing, just like your words can be a good thing. They can be a blessing to people. But a spark can also be devastating. A careless spark in the middle of a dry forest can light a a forest fire that can destroy, fast, furious, far and wide. A spark can destroy just like words can destroy, quickly, far and wide. Words can wreak havoc. I think one of the things that James wants us to see in comparing words to, to a forest fire is the speed at which our words can harm other people. Um, James is probably talking about in Palestine, there were hills that were covered with this dry scrub brush. It's not even trees. It's just, it's just like brambles all over the ground. And they would dry out. And literally, if, if you lit a spark in those brambles when they were dry, that fire could outrun you. Incredibly fast how that fire could spread. That's exactly how sinful words spread. Especially today, thanks to social media. You, you share something online, you share something on a post, maybe just a, a little bit of gossip, a little thing just with your closest friends, and you are horrified to see as the hours pass that that rumor just populates all across the internet, thank you social media, as the damage of your words has now just made it to the other end of the planet at the speed of light. Harmful words can damage people incredibly fast. They get out of your control. Just think about the guy who lit that forest fire as a fun prank, and now it's chasing him. He's not sure he's going to make it out alive. So it is with a little gossip, a little rumor, an unkind thing that you say. It can take on a life of its own, and all of a sudden you can't get it back. You can't control it, and it's hurting people halfway across the planet. So I think the first thing in pointing to, to our tongues, our words as a spark, is to say that, that we can damage people quickly, far and wide. The second reason to look at a forest fire is not, not just the speed of destruction, but the depth of destruction. Think about what a forest fire does. I don't know if any of you have driven through Bastrop in the last couple years. After that forest fire went through Bastrop, man, that, that town is changed. That town is scarred. Like That whole forest will be changed for decades because of that fire. It just leveled that place. Well, that's how sinful words work. They leave scars that don't heal up in a few days. They, they may never heal up in this life. Sinful words can hurt people incredibly deeply. Not many years ago in Vermont, uh, a student thought it would be fun to pull a prank on a 13-year-old boy um, named Ryan Halligan. And so uh, this student posted to some of his friends that Ryan was gay. One little word. One more, just just gay. Um, That rumor spread to other students in the school, got picked up by text messages, got posted online. All of a sudden, Ryan couldn't find any place in the school that was safe. He was ostracized by everybody, and so he killed himself because of one little word. One little word can do damage you cannot imagine. It can destroy people far and wide. It can devastate lives. Words are destructive. Our sinful words hurt other people. The second reason that they're dangerous is because they hurt us. They defile us. When we speak sinfully, it defiles, it stains our entire lives. And it's kind of complicated phrases that James uses in the majority of verse 6. The key thing to see, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It is, James says, the world of iniquity, the unrighteous world. And, And what James is saying, the basic idea is, it is through your words that this sinful world defiles you. It's primarily through your speech, through your words, through your ways of communication that this sinful world influences you towards sin. I think what James is saying here is just—it's very easy to prove. Um, where is it that you learn to talk? From the world, you—you you got your vocabulary from the society that you live in. You got your accent from this culture we live in. You got your grammar. You got your syntax. All of that came from this culture. It is from this world that we learn to talk. And because this world is sinful, as it shapes us, as it teaches us how to talk, it teaches us how to talk sinfully from a very early age. Think about it. How young were you when you first learned from your friends that list of words that are really cool to say, but parents don't want you to say? How young were you when you first learned from a friend how to use sarcasm to your advantage? How young were you when you learned how to make your friends laugh through an off-color joke? How young were you when you learned the power of a lie or gossip or a rumor? From, From the earliest days of childhood, this world is continually teaching us how to speak sinfully How to speak like the world does in harmful and hurtful and sinful ways. And what James wants you to understand is, man, you may live a very outwardly righteous life. Lots of godly actions. All of your actions may be Christ-like. But if your words are like this world, if you speak as the world speaks, then your whole life is defiled. Literally says, it is stained. In the eyes of God, you are a blemish because you speak as the world speaks. Sinful words defile you in the sight of God. Third reason that words are dangerous, sinful words, is because sinful words are demonic. That's the end of verse 6. He says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. And by referring to hell here, he's not referring to the place. He is referring to the creatures for whom hell was created, Satan and his demons. The point is, when you speak sinfully, the, the inspiration behind your sinful speech is ultimately Satan. He is the one inspiring you to that that little piece of gossip, to that little white lie, to that off-color joke, to that harmful word, whatever it might be. He's the one inspiring it. Satan inspires harmful words in us because they open a doorway for Satan to harm us and others. That's how Satan operates. He works through our speech. That's how he's always operated. Think back to the Garden of Eden. How did Satan get Eve to eat the apple? He didn't beat her. To take the tree. He didn't whip her until she grabbed the apple. He just used words. Words that were just a little untrue, sweet words that were just a little off base, led Eve to take the apple. Satan is the father of lies, and every time you speak sinfully, you are simply obeying him. You're simply following him, letting him control your life to harm you and others. And that's, that's a really profound thing to think about for a moment. When you, when you look at Hollywood and how Hollywood represents Satan, What does Hollywood show us um, if if we're talking about a person who is influenced by Satan? A person under the influence of Satan, what do they look like according to Hollywood? Well, they they levitate and they growl and their head spins in weird ways and they look freaky. That's really scary, but that is not at all true. According to the Bible, what does a person look like when they're under the influence of Satan? They look just like any of us. They, They speak a little bit of gossip, share a little white lie. Use sarcasm to their advantage. Tell an off-color joke. Say something that hurts other people. Respond in angry words. Whatever it might be. That is satanic. That's James' point. Satanic is not floating, levitating, head spinning. It's speaking sinful words. Words that hurt other people. Sarcasm, gossip, lies, off-color jokes. That is satanic. It's inspired by Satan. It's an open doorway for him to harm us and others. It's the third danger of sinful words. Fourth, Sinful words are defiant. There in verse 7, he talks about how the human race has has managed to tame all manner of creatures. And yet we can't tame our own tongues. It is easier to tame a wild horse than to get control of our words. And that's especially true for those of us who, who, over the long years of our lives, have learned sinful habits of communication it is incredibly hard to get a handle on those sinful habits. Maybe for the longest time you've, you've said words that are, that are not right, curse words, and all of a sudden you decide, okay, I'm never going to say a curse word again. Man, that's really hard. That's really hard to go cold turkey because you've learned this habit. It's now a part of you. It's so hard to stop them when they're coming out of the gate of your mouth. Or maybe you have learned over the long years of your life to use sarcasm or jokes to make yourself feel good, to make yourself look good. It is hard not to fall back on that. It is hard not to rely on that. Or maybe you have trained yourself in the habit of gossip or a rumor. You, you love the endorphin rush you get when you share this piece of salacious news. And all of a sudden you decide, I'm never going to do that again. Man, it is hard because you are addicted to the sin of gossip. It is so hard to tame sinful words. They take on a life of their own. These sinful habits that we've developed over the long years of our lives are so hard to break. So our words are dangerous. They're powerful and because they are powerful when we speak in sin, it wreaks damage on, on ourselves and on all those around us. Incredibly tough news that James wants us to wrestle with, the power and danger of words. Fortunately, he doesn't end here, just on the bad news. He wants to end by telling us, okay, how do you bless people through your words? How? How is it that we honor God with our speech? What is the measure of godly speech? What kind of words honor God? That's what James tells us in verses 9 through 12. 9-12. 9 through 12. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? Now, the point of all three of those metaphors that James uses, the fountain and the the fig tree and the salt water, the point is just to say this, the measure of your words is their consistency. Godly speech is consistent. You speak to God in the same way that you speak to other people. Now, um, you're all here this morning, and so I I would assume you came this morning because you wanted to say good things to God. That's what we did a few minutes ago in worship. Worship is simply saying to God how much we admire him. We're just telling him how great he is, how good he is. Good job for coming to worship God. That's great. That delights the heart of God, that you said good things about God. But what God cares about now is that you have that same kind of righteous speech from Sunday afternoon until next Sunday morning. That the rest of the week, whether you're speaking to God or to people, you are consistently righteous in your words. If you go from here and and on Monday morning you insult a person, then God doesn't feel happy about that. Because it doesn't matter what you said about God today. By insulting that person on Monday who is made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, you have insulted that person's creator. If we want to honor God, our speech must be consistent, speaking to God in the same way we speak to people, speaking on Sunday mornings the same way we speak throughout the entire week. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, because James doesn't give us a lot of detail here, what exactly is it that is to be consistently part of our speech What should our words consistently measure up to? I think the easiest way to to summarize that is that according to scripture, all of our speech, all of our words should consistently be full of grace and truth. Those are the two key words. If you wanna know, is my speech honoring to God? Ask yourself, is it full of grace and truth? That's the measure of godly words. Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, So that you will know how you should respond to each person. Seasoned with grace. The idea here is, what is grace? Grace is giving someone good, whether they deserve it or not. So what Paul is saying is, all of your words, whether spoken or typed or texted, all of them should be designed for the good of those who will be affected by your words, For their good. Now, now sometimes you have to say something that is painful. Sometimes you have to convict or confront someone. That's okay. You're doing it for their good. That's still grace. You are seeking their good. All of our words should consistently seek the good of others. That's what it means to speak in grace. And and speaking in grace means that this forbids all forms of gossip and rumors and uh, sarcasm and off-color jokes and anything that harms other people. Anything that could harm other people, we do not say it. We do not type it. We do not text it because it is not full of grace. Second measure. So full of grace, second measure, full of truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak truth. This one's pretty self-explanatory. Our, our words, whether spoken or texted, should measure up to God's standard of truth. Not, not the human standard of truth. Mostly true, politically true, spun truth. No, absolute truth. Our words should be true to the letter and to the intent. And what this forbids is certainly lies or white lies, but also distortion or manipulation. All of that is forbidden by this. Our speech should consistently be full of grace and truth. Everything we say should measure up to the bar of grace and truth. Now, that is tricky. I had some great conversations after the first service. How do I actually do that? Is it okay for one spouse to vent to the other spouse about what's going on at work, even though I'm not saying it very graciously? Uh, those are tricky. We need God's wisdom in that. The challenge is, I told them this, and it kind of depressed them. You can say the same thing to one person, and it's righteous, and another person, and it's sinful. It's really tricky to do this. You need God's help to work it out, but the basic rule of thumb, what I am saying, what I am texting, what I am typing, does it measure up to the bar of grace, It's meant for good and truth. It is true as God sees truth. Everything we say, speak, type, or text should be full of grace and truth. And where I want to end, James doesn't really go here, but where I want to end is just a note on, on practice. How do we actually pull this off? Man, you tell me that all of my words, whether spoken or typed, have to measure up to God's grace and truth. That is incredibly hard. And that's really hard for me to be able to get control of my tongue, to get control of my words so that nothing comes out of my mouth or onto my screen that is not full of grace and truth. That's incredibly hard. So practically speaking, how do we pull this off? I want to give you two practical steps to get control of your words. While I do this, the men are going to prepare communion for us, which we have the privilege of celebrating in a few minutes. I just want to give you guys two practical steps. I'll let you know these are two practical steps I myself am working on. None of us are immune to this challenge. But these are the two most helpful steps that I have discovered in my own journey, my own battle to get control of my words first. If I want to get control of my words, I've got to rely on the only one who can tame the tongue. I've got to rely on him. Verse 8, I don't know if you look back at verse 8 and notice. It's a really depressing verse. After telling us that we have got to get control of our words or we are going to hurt other people, James admits, oh, dang, you can't. You can't tame your tongue. It's really sad news. It's like a catch-22. I have to get control of my words, but I can't do it. I cannot do it through human effort. No human being can gain control of the tongue. That would be depressing if we were limited to human ability, but we're not. That is the great news for us who are believers. The moment you trusted in Jesus, God came to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit right now lives inside of you. God, omnipotent, all-powerful. And the Holy Spirit can do what you can't. No, you cannot tame your tongue, but he can. He can get control of your words. He can make sure that all of your words are full of grace and truth. If you will rely upon him, as Paul says in Galatians 5... A passage we've studied many times before. I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the spirit. Let the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you direct your life. You do that just really practically by spending time in the word and time in prayer. Time in prayer so that you can ask. God, please, through your spirit, give me victory over sinful words. Give me peace and patience and righteousness in my speech. And time in the word so that you can hear from the spirit. So the spirit can speak to you through the word of God and help you become a person who guards your mouth. Who guards your words. So, first practical step. If you want to restrain your tongue and control your words, you must rely on the only one who can pull it off, the Spirit. Second practical tip I have for you is to be slow to speak. This one's a a little less spiritual, a little just more straight up practical. Be slow to speak. That comes from chapter 1, verse 19. One of multiple commands he gives there. James says, be slow to speak. He's picking up Proverbs here. Says that in Proverbs multiple times. Here's one example, Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Or I love it how Publius put it about 100 years before James, I have often regretted my speech, never my silence. Never my silence. Now we can't take this too far. Um, God doesn't want you to never speak. If you never spoke, then you could never share the gospel because the gospel is good news that consists of words about Jesus. And if you don't share the gospel, then you're just wasting space here on the planet earth because that's the only reason you're still here. So you got to speak. And, and we know from James 1 and 2, we should be speaking up for the vulnerable, for the orphans, for the widows, for those who can't defend themselves. God wants you to speak, but he wants you to speak slowly, carefully. God wants you to pause before you speak, before you type, before you text, and to think and pray and consider this message I am about to communicate, whether in spoken words or on a computer, does it measure up to the bar of God's grace and truth? He just wants us to slow down, to pause long enough, to to put our words before God, to measure them tell you guys, I have never regretted the times in my life where I have paused in the middle of a heated conversation. Or, this one's happened often to me, um, I get really frustrated, I get really angry about something, and I write an email about it to the person who has angered me, and then I was told this years ago, it has always proved true, when I write an angry email, I never send it the day I write it. Save it to the draft folder. Go to sleep. Wake up the next morning, nine times out of ten, realize, that's dumb, Blake. You just need to put that in the trash pile and figure out a different way to handle this. Probably not by email. Email is a pretty bad way to express emotion to people. So I, I just do that. I sleep on it, and I find out the next morning, sure enough, no, it did not measure up to God's grace and truth. I have never regretted sleeping on an email. I have never regretted pausing on a heated conversation. I'll just say, you know what? We got to pause on this and let's talk about this tomorrow. A lot of people think they have to work out all their disagreements before the end of the day. No, you don't. Sleep on it. Wake up and you'll find half the problem is fixed just by sleeping. Now let's deal with the rest. You will never regret pausing long enough to think, pray, and consider the righteousness of your words. Just pause to give God time to speak to you. So, just practical steps. If we want to gain control over this, this powerful weapon in our mouths, this loaded handgun we're walking around with in our mouths, we have to rely on the only one who can pull it off, the Holy Spirit, by spending daily time in his word and in prayer. And two, we've got to learn to be slow to speak, to pause before saying that thing, texting that thing, emailing or posting that thing. Just pause to pray and think. Now, the sad challenge for us is that even practicing those two steps, I can pretty much guarantee you that this week, all of us are going to blow it at some point with our words. It's just part of being human. Really hard to gain control of the tongue. All of us are going to slip out at some point, slip up at some point. The good news is, and the good news that we get to celebrate in communion is that when we sin in our speech, God does not hold us accountable for it. He does not judge us for it because Jesus died for that sin. Jesus took all of our sins, including our sinful speech, upon himself, took the punishment we deserved, died to set aside that sinful speech. We are forgiven of our sinful speech because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's the blessed truth of communion that we get to celebrate. Now, I would just ask you guys, as the band plays and as the elements come forward, just take this time to go before the Lord and thank him for his forgiveness. Thank him that through Jesus, all of the words that we have ever said that are sinful, that are hurtful, have been forgiven.
1: Paul says in 1
0: Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember Jesus Christ, to remember what he did for us 2,000 years ago. Thank you for his death, Lord. Thank you that as a perfect sacrifice, he willingly took our sins upon himself, and died taking the punishment that we deserved. Thank you, Father, that he was too strong for death to hold him down, that you raised him from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death and Satan on our behalf so that we could live with you forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus' death and resurrection has purchased forgiveness for us so that we can be clean, so that we can be holy, so that we can spend eternity with you. I pray for any person in this room who has not yet received that forgiveness that they would understand with absolute clarity that eternal life is not something to be earned or merited. It is something that Christ has earned for them. All they must do is simply believe, simply accept that he died for them and rose from the dead. For all of us, Lord, who have trusted in Christ, I pray, Father, please work in our lives through your spirit convict us, challenge us, and change us so that our words might completely honor you So that nothing but grace and truth would come out of our mouths or into an email or text or post. I pray that our communication would always be righteous. That we would always seek other people's good. That we would seek to edify and bless rather than to hurt or harm through our words. And I pray, Father, that as we do that, you would help us to be lights in this world. That people would see this and and be attracted to your son through our words. Help us to honor you this week, Lord.